questions that came up recently. The first question, very uh, interesting, Shiloh. Let's say a person pledges to give a tzedakah fund, some sort of charitable organization, $100. And they send him a link in the email for him to, uh, to give his credit card information. And he sends in $100. But we know that even though he sends in $100, or he's charged $100 on his card, probably about $97 and a few cents will be the total that makes it to the, uh, to the organization. So he's not actually giving $100 because there's a cut that the credit card processing company uh, takes in order to get the money from one place to another. So has the person really fulfilled their measure? That's the question. Another question, uh, recently uh, some individuals <coughs> came to our shul collecting money and our shul Sudaka fund issued them checks. They were verified by uh, local um, <coughs> vadim that, uh, that oversee certification for people who are seeking uh, funds and they go around to uh, collect in the shuls. Um, and we gave them from the Shul Sadaka Fund a certain amount of money. And we got a call from them later saying as follows. Uh, Rabbi, I, I thank you very much for, uh, for the contribution, for the donation. Um, after you uh, gave us the money, we learned that the driver who takes us around to the different locations to collect money, uh, he demands a 40% cut from the people who are collecting that he's, he's bringing around to different locations. And as a result... Uh, you know, we're only going to get a, a fraction of what you gave us. So, how about this? How about um, you write us another check? We'll rip up the one that you gave us. You write us another check for $50, okay? And, uh, and, and you'll write us a new check. Um, that check, $50, we'll, we'll give to the, to the driver and say, look, this is what we got. We got $50 from the rabbi. And you'll send us another check for the balance, and that'll just be between us off the books. Very, very sketchy scheme, okay? So uh, how do we respond to that? All right, so that, those are our two questions that inspired the topic this year. And I think over the course of the next uh, 45 minutes or an hour or so, we'll, we'll cover some, some of the interesting background that, uh, that, that is important to be aware of in, in looking at both of those questions. Uh, and you may face them. So, uh, so keep your eyes open and your, uh, and your ears uh, listening, please. Okay, let's go to the Parsha. Okay, Parsha's Kisisa begins collecting the Shkala, right? The first major fundraising effort in Klal Yisrael. And uh, the Shkala were collected to build the Mishkan. And of course, it was Bitzalel ben Uri ben Chur Lamate Yehuda, source number one, Pasuk Beis, who's selected to be the architect who's going to uh, to put everything together and create this Mishkan. Mishkan. Pasuk Gimel, Vamalio Saruch Elkim Bechachma Ubesvuna Ubedas of Chomolacha. Hashem says that Bitzalel was not just a talented artist or artisan, um, but uh, he was going to be imp- uh, Hashem was going to impart to him divine knowledge and wisdom, understanding and, uh, and and knowledge, in order that he should be able to perform everything that's necessary to uh, to make the Mishkan come together. Uvachomalacha, sounds like everything, right? Any any talents, any skills that he needs. To uh, to create this this mishkan, he's going to be given that information, that uh, that knowledge. But then the pasuk says something a little bit mysterious because it, it's vague and, and we don't know exactly how to how to uh, interpret this. Lachashov machashavos. What else is he being given given the ability to do? Lachashov machashavos to think thoughts. Think thought. What what thoughts is he thinking? What what exactly is this machshava? Lasos bazahavu vakesav anachoshes. Something that he's going to do with the gold, the silver and the copper that was received, right? But 
he's going to think about those things, right? Is he going to do something with those things? Uh, the last Pasuk already said that he's going to be given So we've covered everything. What else is there that we could possibly be referring to with Lashav Machshel? So hopefully we can get back to that at the very end of this year. But keep that question in mind. Source number two is in this coming week's portion by Yakel. By after announcing what it is that they need to collect for the purposes of uh, the Mishkan project, so people start bringing all their materials, and the, uh, the foremen and the supervisors in different parts of the project um, were collecting what the people brought to Moshe, and eventually they said to Moshe, there's so much, we probably have more than what we need. Moshe commands uh, them to get the word out that it would, no longer would be necessary to bring any more donations. They should not bring any more donations for the, the, for the building of the Mishkan. And the people stop. And uh, the Pesach concludes by saying, indeed, they collected so much that it was even a surplus. They had more than what they needed. Okay, so here, Halavai, all of our fundraising efforts should be so successful that we get so much that we can't even do anything with all of it. But that's not always the case. And instead, we need to sometimes urge people to, uh, in order to raise the money or collect whatever it is that we, uh, we have to distribute, whatever it is that we have to put to a good purpose. And for that reason, source number three, in the Health of Tzedakah, in Shulchan Aruch, in Yerodeah, Mechaber says as follows, and this is basically the words of the Ram. Every city, every Jewish city, has to appoint a Gavai Tzedakah, someone who is, is well-known, has a good reputation, and trustworthy. So the job of the Gavai, not the same thing that we're used to. The Gavai's job in those days was, let's say you had a little shtetl, and the uh, leaders of the town, the Tuve Ha'ir, the people who were uh, in charge of supporting the town and maintaining the, uh, the uh, security and the uh, financial viability of the town and so forth, making big decisions, hiring the rabbi. So they would assess. They would assess that, uh, you know, we have poor people in town here and we need $1,000 a week to keep them uh, afloat. So they would take that $1,000 budget, they would divide it among the members of the town who had money, right? Someone, this person has to give $100, this person has to give $30. Based on the means of the people in the town, uh, we would divide up that, uh, that, that fundraising effort, and the Gavi would go around, knock on people's doors, and say, okay, your weekly, your weekly $30 donation is due. Please hand over $30 so we can give it to, uh, to the pot that would go to the, uh, to the Aniyim. And then the Mechaber continues, second line of source number three, the Hemachalka, Mamos, Erev Shabbos, Erev Shabbos, and once a week, Erev Shabbos, they would distribute the funds that they collected. And we would give a week's parnasa to each one of the poor people, whatever they would need. And that is what Chazal, Gemara Baba Basra, referred to as Kupa. Kupa is a box. Kupa was the collection box uh, of the cash that they would need to support people for a week. In addition to that, the Mechaber goes, along to talk, uh, goes on to talk about the Tamchoy. Tamchoy is when they collected food. Right? Not talking about cash, we're talking about food. And the food would also be distributed, would be, or I should say would be available, people who, uh, who needed to eat, local people, people passing through the town, who come from the Tamchoy. At the last 
Last line of that paragraph, and Machabra continues by saying, he concludes by saying, that we have never heard of a community in Kal Yisrael, around the world, that does not have a kupa. Not everyone has a tamcho, that's not universal, but raising the basic funds and a similar system of distributing them once a week and collecting from each person about uh, what they can afford as part of that bigger budget, that is a universal practice in Kal Yisrael. Now, so much so is this a very important uh, function, the Gabbai Tzedakah, we find Postman say you should stand up when the Gabbai Tzedakah goes around to collect money. Now, <clears throat> in a certain sense, the Gabbai Tzedakah, in that context, is no different than anyone else who is, who is on his way to perform a mitzvah. We learn from the Mishnah at the end of Bikurim. Mishnah Bikurim talks about when the Jewish people would bring the Bikurim from other parts of Eretz Yisrael to Yushalayim. Everyone in Yushalayim would greet them. They would stop what they're doing, stop their work, and, and uh, there was a whole parade. And uh, we would show covet to those, uh, to those people who are coming to bring their first fruits to Yushalayim. We learn from there, a number of contexts this is brought down, that we stand up for someone who's on the way to do a mitzvah. For example, if there's a Leviah passing by, we stand up for the individuals who are carrying the mace. It says in, uh, uh, the post can say, in the laws of Brismila, right? We stand when the baby is brought into, into the room. The baby, the parents, the father is on the way to perform the mitzvah of Brismila. And that's probably the most likely reason why it is that at a wedding we stand when the chassan walks down the aisle because he's about to perform the mitzvah. <clears throat> Aaron, remember? The mitzvah of getting married. Okay? And uh, as a result, we stand up when he passes by. Likewise, we should stand up when the Gavit Tzedakah goes to collect money. And we do this. We don't even realize we do this. But, you know, in, in, uh, if you look in Art Scroll Sitter, it says uh, in Pesukah de Zimmer, by Yavarach David, says that uh, when you get to the words, right? It says on the side of the, of the sitter, side of the page, that you sh- it's appropriate to set aside some money for tzedakah. You know what I'm talking about? You ever see that? T- t- take a look. It's in, uh, it's in the sitter. It used to be, at that point in davening, when they would say, because Baruch is in control of all the wealth, Right? So that's a good time to set aside some tzedakah, to remind yourself that Hashem is really the one who dictates your, your budget and the budget of, uh, of other people, and therefore behooves us to, uh, to give the money, the blessings that, we, uh, that we're zochah to for, um, <clears throat> for tzedakah. So people would separate money, and the gabbai would go around collecting at that point. Yaakov Kamenetsky says that even though that isn't necessarily the meaning in every shul, that's where it came from. That's why it says in the sitters, stand up in Vayavarak David, because it was customary for the Gabayim to be collecting money at that point, at that juncture. So that, we stand up for it. Okay? Now it's interesting to note that some can say that the obligation to stand, to stand up when the Gabay is going around collecting money, is not, is not uh, applicable if the Gabay is getting paid for what he does. If he's doing it out of the goodness of his heart, as a community servant, and yes, the ideal is for every Gabay Tzedakah to, to perform those duties free of charge, okay, simply for the, uh, for the purpose of, of, of giving the money to the Aniyam and helping make sure to raise that money. So as a result, uh, you know, maybe it's not such a big deal. He's just, you know, if he gets paid for it, he's just doing it. Uh, so then we don't have to give him the same, the same accolades. If he's doing it as a community servant, you know, you have a Gabai of, of the shul who spends a lot of time uh, serving the community in that regard. You have other people, you have you know, people for the Chesed uh, 
initiatives in, in the shul, but the person who's just going around, knocking people's doors and saying, okay, you know, time to, time to pay up the money that you owe. He's a, he's a, he's a collector, you know, he's like a tax collector. He's not, uh, he's not doing any special mitzvah, so maybe we don't have to stand up for him. Interesting. Could be. Could be. However, uh, we'll qualify that with one more statement. Yes, go ahead, Aaron. Could be, could be, just a suggestion. Could be that uh, for the Rav, you're standing up for Kavanah Torah. Not, not because of anything he's doing particularly at that moment. Okay? He comes into uh, to the room to sit down and eat lunch. You know, there's no mitzvah necessarily in the, in the classic sense. But uh, you're giving covered to, uh, to Torah. <clears throat> for, for the uh, average person, so if they're doing something specific that's, that falls in the category of mitzvah, so then we, we acknowledge that. However, and maybe this will be a little more palatable for you, Aaron, uh, the post can further qualify that that we don't see that so special if he's just a tax collector, meaning there's a preset amount that each person has to give, and I go around and I'm just the physical transportation device of getting the money from one place to another, that, that's when we don't uh, pay as much attention or, or, uh, or respect. But let's say he's what we would call a mashulach. Let's say the function of this gabai is as a mashulach where his responsibility is not just to collect money, but he's got to go around and make a pitch. And he's got to convince people. And when they only want to give $18, he's got to convince them to give $36. You know, and uh, to encourage people to, to give, that already is a very big deal, right? Because just to, just to collect a, pre, uh, a predetermined sum, you know, you don't, you're not really doing any mitzvah function. Because for all intents and purposes, the person who owes the money should himself get up and show, show up uh, to the, to the basin, to the shul, wherever he is, he's supposed to drop off the, uh, the money, and give it himself. Okay, so he's lazy, so you have to go around and remind him. But if the, the function of the Gabbai Tzedakah is to do more than that, but actually to, to elicit the funds and, and uh, encourage people to give uh, or give more, so that is a very important enterprise, and we should give more, uh, more recognition to that. Okay, so from there, from that, uh, you know, from that context, we, we begin to enter the, the historical significance of not merely a Gabbai, but a particular type of Gabbai, who, who, who hopefully will raise a lot of money, and maybe more than just this, this basic sum that we assess from people's parnasa, but, but, but even, e- even greater amounts. And the question is, the question then becomes, is that person, because of the great mitzvah that he's doing, is he entitled to some sort of compensation? Now, Hazal tell us, Godol schar ha'ma'asa yoser min ha'osa. When it comes to tzedakah, when it comes to tzedakah, the reward that the collector gets is even greater than the reward that the person who's giving receives. Okay, again, working with what we're what we're suggesting that there's a unique status to someone who who has to go out and collect the money and encourage other people to give. Right. So so potentially there's an unlimited schar because it all is a result of of whatever he brings in. Every penny that he's able to raise right is because of his efforts. I mean, every penny that's given to Tzedakah is because of his efforts. So he deserves a special schar for that. That's schar in Olm Haba. But what about the schar in Olm Hazeh? So let's, let's turn to source number four. We're going to do a little bit of history over here, tracing some of the sources as they played out in real time back in the day. In the, in the uh, 1800s, mid-1800s, there was a great posek in Europe by the name of the Maharsham. Maharsham stands for Rav, uh, um, Rav Shalom Mordechai Shvadron. 
Now, Roshon Shadron, you may recognize that name as uh, as the name of the Magid, the great Magid of Yushalayim that all the uh, Rabbi Pesach Kron books um, are about. You know, the, collecting a lot of the stories that the, the, the Magid used to share. Rabbi Kron had a special relationship with him, and he recorded a lot of the Magid uh, stories. The Magid speaks around the Magid table. table. He incorporated other stories since then. But uh, that was also, uh, his name was also Roshon Mordechai Shadron because he was a grandson of the Maharsham, who had the same name, in Europe. So, what was asked over here is as follows. Let's read, let's read a few lines over here. Nisha'alti, the Toshave Artseno HaKadosha V'ir Tiveria. The Rav, and the community, in Tiveria and Eretz Yisrael, Kibona V'sikonim Heri Yameinu, which will be rebuilt in our days, V'tziel Afonai Mechtav Me'er Rav HaGadol, Maharatz, Nero Yoyer, Motz Desham, the rub of the town, the rub of the city of Tiveria, sent the following question. It became the practice of the Shadar. Shadar is an abbreviation that stands for the Shlucha de Rabbanon. The rabbis sent a messenger, an emissary, to travel around the world in Chutzla Aretz, from city to city, from country to country, in order to raise money for the poor people in Eretz Yisrael. In those days, people were really destitute. Eretz Yisrael, you know, Parnassus was almost impossible. And uh, most of what they lived on was the Chalukah, was the money that came in from Europe and from America. The, uh, and the Shadar was the one whose job it was to be the Mashalach, to go around. He was sent to collect the money for the people in Eretz Yisrael. So they wanted to know if we can follow a practice that had been, that had been, uh, um, had been instituted so there was a set salary that every mashol got when it was time for him to travel. They gave him, they gave him, uh, they gave him money and sent him on his way. But they wanted to know if it's appropriate, in addition to that, to also give a percentage of what was collected to the shaliach. So the shaliach is going to collect a million dollars. Maybe let's give him a cut of that money that he collects beyond, above and beyond the base salary that he receives to do this job. Is this appropriate? Is this, is this fair for the administrators of the tzedakah fund to do? Because essentially they're taking money that would otherwise be allocated for poor people, and now we're giving this bonus right, to the mashal to take a cut from what he collects and keep it for himself, which may not have been the intention of the people who are giving the money in the first place. So, Aaron, hold on one second. This is now the response to Marsham. Marsham gives his stamp of approval. He says, In our situation, Marsham says, Absolutely, this makes sense. Why? Because if you give them, we'll call it uh, an incentive, a bonus for his performance, right? So then he's going to be motivated to raise more money, to try harder, because he has a vested interest in keeping a cut for himself. And when he does, so more money, 
more money is going to come in because he's trying harder to raise the money. He's trying harder to raise the money. The Lokin and Lokin Rakav Rakatsubri, if he only gets a set amount every year, so then, you know, he's not going to try very uh, very hard wherever he gets, whether it's a little, whether it's a lot, he still comes away with the same sour. So therefore, in order to, we'll consider an investment, we can give him a cut if that will, in the big picture, uh, uh, bring us to the point where more money is raised. If you think about it, it's not so different than any other type of business, right? You know, you can have a startup company, Eitan. You have a startup company uh, that 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 uh, begins losing money for years, in you know initially, because in order to ultimately be successful and hopefully be very successful, uh, they need to swallow the fact that uh, that that it's going to take time to sink effort and funds into building the business until it becomes uh, successful and and uh, and it can really start making money. So it, it isn't that much different than a tzedakah. It's willing to put more money for the uh, the overhead that uh, that it's investing if it feels hopefully it's accurate but if it feels that big picture um, this will raise more money for the aniyim so we're not taking away from one ani and giving it to the shaliach we're we're holding on to the money uh, temporarily in order to in the long range bring in more for the aniyim and in source number six the marsham brings two rayas that that really say this uh, this principle clearly. One is the Gemara in Rosh Hashanah. It's, it's a Mishnah. You may be familiar with. The Mishnah in Rosh Hashanah says, talking about being Makayish L'Chodesh and the witnesses coming, the witnesses coming from <clears throat> from all parts of Eretz Yisrael, if they saw the new moon, to testify in Yerushalayim in front of the Sanhedrin. And, of course, you can imagine why someone might not feel that they want to do it. It's a schlep. It could be Shabbos. So you can miss, you know, uh, spending Shabbos with their family. There, it could be at their own expense. It could be a long trip, and it's got to be done quickly because they want to get there first thing the next morning if they saw the moon the night before. So it wasn't always a very enticing thing, but obviously it was a mitzvah. But uh, but people could get discouraged. So what do they do? How do you get Jews to show up anywhere? You make a party, you make a smorgasbord, and then asudos gedolos, and of course throw a kiddush, and people are going to come. Shiloh, and I think this is what he's getting at. Where did that money come from? Who's paying for the guy to make sushi? Right? Someone's got to pay for it. Isn't that coming from consecrated funds? Funds that were dedicated to the base of Migdash by people. It's probably coming from the Shkalim. Probably coming from the Maktas Shekel that, uh, that would be contributed and is now being spent uh, on, on enticing people to come to Yerushalayim and giving them food, which was not the primary intent of people who gave them money in the first place. Right? So he says, Elamai, we have to come to the conclusion that when there's a mitzvah purpose that is absolutely necessary, then diverting the funds towards that indirect need that will ultimately support the mitzvah, enhance the mitzvah, that is entirely acceptable. And doing so by giving giving the shuliach a little more money and encouraging him to work harder uh, is getting the job done. And as I think uh, Ravuzna writes and, and Shermach writes, even if ideally the job of a tzedakah collector should be to do it for free, to do it out of the goodness of his heart, but you know what? If this is a job that really takes a lot of time and effort, and there isn't a reasonable compensation, then no one's going to do it. No one's going to do it, right? If you can't, uh, if you can't be a mensch, support your family, and still collect tzedakah, then uh, then people can find other professions. Look, we, we have this nowadays in, uh, in in the world of chinuch. We have a terrible, terrible shortage of mechanchim and mechanchos because uh, look, it costs a lot of money to raise a family, 
the Orthodox community now with tuition and kosher food and everything else, what it costs. And people are just saying, look, I, if uh, I, I have, have the skills to go into business, into medical, into medical school, to, to be a lawyer, make a lot more money, then, you know, why should I uh, live in poverty? And uh, obviously it takes a lot of serious nefesh to, to want to serve Klal Yisrael, and we should do it. We should do it nonetheless. But if you can't make it respectable for the Parnassa, then people are not going to do it. And then he brings one more riot, and then I'll get to your question on him. Last riot he brings is uh, in source number seven, or source number eight, in, uh, in Erechen. <clears throat> Gemara talks about Rabbi Yanai. Rabbi Yanai was a tzedakah collector. He was a gabi tzedakah. And the Gemara is discussing that issue of once money is collected for tzedakah, for charitable cause, can it be diverted for some other purpose? And the Gemara says, wait a minute. Rabbi Yanai, Yosef Upara. Rabbi Yanai used to borrow money from the kupa, from the money that was collected for tzedakah, <clears throat> when he needed per- cash personally, and you'd pay it back later. So in fact, the Gemara, how did Rabbi Yanai have a right to do that? That does not seem appropriate to take money from the, from the funds of tzedakah to, for, his own, uh, for his own mortgage or whatever he needed. It was actually something the Aniyam found to be uh, helpful and to be beneficial to them if he would borrow the money. Why? Because let's say he, uh, he borrowed the money for his own, his own needs. And then somewhere uh, along the line, before he paid it back, someone shows up to his door and, and uh, is looking for tzedakah. So what's he going to tell him? Sorry, no money, I borrowed it for myself. No, he's going to have to work harder to collect money from people in town in order to make sure that the coffers are filled, make sure that the funds are available for the poor people, even though he's going to end up paying back his debt later, which means Saha Kol there's the potential that there'll actually be more money than there otherwise would have been available to the Aniyim. So the Marsham says, you see from here that we can make those investments, we can divert the funds to other, uh, other places if in the long run that means they'll be able to collect more money for the Tzibar. Yes, Aaron, what's your question? So now that we established that, that giving a percentage to the, to the tzedakah collector is valid, the next shadow we need to, to try to figure out is, okay, how much? How much can you get? So let's go a little bit further back in time to the Chuvas Maram Galanti. Maram Galanti lived in the 1500s. He was a great Svari Posek, and uh, later, I think he moved to Tzvas and became a Talmud of Moshe Pardavero, Talmud of the Arizal, the Mikubalim. Um, and he, uh, he was Esteban question. It's a wild Shaila, okay? But uh, there's, there's a line or two at the end of the Shaila that, uh, that really give, gives us the... Uh, uh, the answer we're looking for. She'ela. Here's the question. Okay, the, uh, the leaders of a, of a town, so the leaders of the town um, supported the people in the town, uh, but it was necessary for them to borrow money from the Goyim, and they had to borrow with interest, and the interest piled up, and it became an enormous sum. So this was things were looking bad, and it was going to be dangerous, and the uh, the people they borrowed the money from were going to come after them. So they decided as a group. 
these uh, seven leaders of the town to hire themselves out or even allow themselves to be put into jail uh, as a way to halt the increasing debts that were compounding uh, until Hashem had Rachmanus on them. And they all went into jail. As they agreed, while they were in jail, also so they, uh, I don't know, they drew lots or whatever, and they decided to select one of the group who, instead of staying in jail, he would be sent out to communities around the world with a letter, with a very uh, distressing report about what's going on in the town, and he'll go on uh, you know, this collection mission, and that'll be his efforts, and the other people will go in jail as their efforts to, uh, you know, to avert any disaster on behalf of the Jewish people in the town. And the Shaliach, we'll call him Reuven, Reuven went with that understanding. There would be an understanding that his friends, the other six uh, leaders, would stay in jail to prevent additional debt from forming. So this Shalech was sent to collect money on condition that he would not keep anything for himself except for very, very basic needs of his family. So uh, some of them would sit in jail, that would be their part, and the other one would go on this mission to try to collect money but not keep anything for himself because, you know, he was, he was working on behalf of his friends and on behalf of the community. Problem is, after he went on his, his mission, shortly afterwards, his friends who were in jail changed their mind and decided to go out of jail and borrow more money and raise the debt even further and so on and so forth. Now look at the underlying part. The Shaliach now claims He doesn't want any part in this original deal because he went traveling all over the world and they, who were supposed to stay in jail, decided to come out of jail and increase the debt. So he's like, what am I doing here? This was not what we agreed upon. My chalik was not for you behind my back to make things worse. Certainly not for you to get off the hook of living in jail while I am killing myself to travel around collecting all this money. So he said, what What should I get in return? You guys got a break, you left jail. I would like, let's continue, He said, let us, uh, the, uh, the Shliach said, the Meshulach said, you should give me a Shlish or a one third or one quarter, which is normal for a Tzedakah collector to keep for himself, because since I'm not just acting on your behalf now, because you didn't keep your part of the bargain, now I'm doing it more, you know, by my own volition, I will choose to only do so at the goodness of my heart if I'm compensated in the same way that any other Meshulach would be compensated. And... He just sort of sneaks that in. What is a normal compensation cut? Shlish, a third, or a revia, one quarter. And the Maram Galanti gives his stamp of approval to this as well, indicating 500 years ago that a percentage of a third or a quarter is apparently not just valid, but was a long-standing practice internationally amongst Tzedakah collectors would go around and keep a percentage for themselves. So from here we see, from this Maram Galati, we see that it may in fact be reasonable 
where it's not the collector knocks on your door and he's he's uh, you know he's taking money for for somebody or some uh, institution in Israel to keep twenty five percent maybe even thirty five percent for himself and indeed if you look at modern day Poskim or Scheinberg uh, held that twenty five percent was a reasonable amount of his we have in print from the stipler that thirty five percent is acceptable too and there's even a shmua. This is said Baalpeh. We don't have this in print, but there's a widespread um, report that the Chazanish held that as long as 51% is given to the organization, the Shaliach can keep 49% for himself. Now that sounds like a lot of money. It definitely sounds like a lot of money. And maybe it is too much. Uh, but it is apparently not unusual, even Bismanazeh, for Shluchim to keep as much as 49% for themselves. Okay? Now, even though that sounds like a lot, and you may say to yourself, well, why am I giving all that money if only a fraction of it, you know, 51% is actually getting to the poor people? Um, so we have to sort of balance that, this gray area of what is appropriate, what's not appropriate, or what percentage is appropriate, with, on the other hand, the question of what does it take to appropriately compensate a Meshulach? And if we go beneath a certain level, then will we even be able to have Meshulachim who can do this for a reasonable a reasonable compensation, you know, if, if we're not giving them something that's respectable? So that that is the basis for this uh, this conversation. If you look at source number 11, the first paragraph from from Sternbach, the practice of the Mishal keeping himself, a portion of what he collects, that's for sure okay. It's for the benefit of the Mishal. He doesn't get a real wage as a Mishal. No one's going to ever want to be a Mishal. Kotimar and Erechon, we quoted before. Then the end of the line it says, It is accepted that. The a percentage of the collection goes to the Meshulach, and that's what motivates him to do his work. And he says, today, if you give 51% to the, to the uh, institution you're working for, that already is considered appropriate. And more than that, could be Geneva. Okay, getting back to your, or Gezel, getting back to your question, Aaron. Could be more than that is, is above and beyond what is acceptable and would not be okay. Let's pause for a second. And, and state that it could be, yeah, Yosef, I, at this point, we probably answered our first question. The first question is, if you are, if you're giving money to a tzedakah via credit card, so it's interesting, if, in the last couple of years, you see more and more frequently, if you give money online to an organization, after you put in your credit card information, they'll also say, you know, click this box if you want to give $2.39 to cover the, uh, whatever percentage that the credit card processing company takes for themselves, right, your additional donation saves us money, right? So does a person have to do that? So let me ask you this. When the Meshulach knocks at your door and asks for money, after you give him a check, does he say, oh, by the way, if you pay my salary also, that would be very nice and you'll save money for the, uh, for the Tzibor, for the Yadim. Obviously not. We've never heard of anything like that. That's, that's, that's wild. He probably wouldn't take in too much money like that. But in theory, not only is there no difference between the credit card processing fee and other and, and the Mishulah's fee, but you know any overhead that is spent by the by the company, which includes the Mishulah's fees, 
right? That that's 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 the tzorach of the tzedakah. The tzedakah needs the tzedakah organization needs to spend that money in order to raise anything. In order to raise anything, it's not going to be successful. If anything, if you if you pay on credit card, you may actually give more tzedakah than if you waited for the mishulach to come to your door, because you're you know now we've seen the credit card company is going to take two three percent and the mishulach is going to take. 30, 40% or, or more. So in essence, it's it's a form of overhead, or it's a form of overhead that actually may be doing a service to the to the uh, to the organization um, because it's more efficient. They'd rather do it on, on a credit card rather than sending out envelopes and and uh, and all the all the office work that's necessary to process it. it when maybe you guys remember when you're a little bit younger, but you still see it sometimes if you get an envelope in the mail from a tobacco organization and they and they give you a return envelope for you to put a check inside. It'll say on the top corner of the envelope, like where you put the stamp. It says, like you know, if you put a stamp here, you're saving us an additional, an additional few cents because they're gonna have to pay postage, bulk rate, you know, for nonprofit organizations to the postal service. But if you put it on the stamp, right, you'll save them that money. No one w- would tell you that if you made a hundred dollar pledge, you really should write a check for ninety nine dollars and fifty cents and put a stamp on it instead, right? Because even though it's understood that if you mail that hundred dollar check. The tzedakah organization is going to lose 30, 40, 50 cents on the postage. Okay, but that's an assumed cost, just like the secretary who receives the checks and walks them over to the bank, who also has to get paid in order to put the money into the, uh, into the account. Those are all the, the uh, expenses involved. I want to get you in a second. Just take a look. We're going to, if you turn to page three of the Marmakomos, tzedakah mishpat. This is written by Rabloi, passed away a number of years ago. It was Ravin Yishalayim. Great, uh, great posek, and, and wrote many, uh, many very important svarim on, on specific topics here. This one is on tzedakah. Rasha gabi tzedakah lenakos mikupas hatzedakah hotzol shahilo avor tzedakah benechshav lenosin kitzedakah. The gabai can take off a percentage for his not just his salary, but his hotzols. Right? He's gonna have to. He's on the road. He's gonna have to pay for travel expenses. He's gonna have to pay for a place to stay, and that all comes out of the. The expenses in, in Mem Dalid, right? He says, even those expenses that you pay or that you're ultimately covering, right? His travel expenses, that's also tzedakah for the person giving, right? It's not just on the receiving end what they're allowed to divert the funds for, but even the giver fulfills tzedakah with that money. Nira Pashat on the bottom, since that's part of the needs of what the tzedakah comp, uh, organization has to spend to, uh, to, to operate. So even if you know, I'm going back to your question before, even if you know he's getting a percentage, okay, you're still fulfilling the mitzvah of tzedakah with what you give because those are the expenses to get uh, to run the the organization. It happens to be the, the money we gave our our matanos avionim to that we collected for Baruch Hashem very successfully over over Purim. Um, one of the reasons why I like that organization is because there's a family in Cleveland who, out of the goodness of their heart, spends a lot of money to cover all the overhead. They lay out all the money for the operations of the tzedakah so that you can be guaranteed that every dollar you give goes to a poor man in Eretz Yisrael. Okay, so obviously there's an advantage to that. There seems to be a, a mile to it, but it's still considered tzedakah 100% even if not every dollar that you give makes it there. Just an interesting illustration of this, and I'll take a question, Aaron. Going back to Sturmbach, he has a story here with Briskorov that a certain uh, Briskorov came to Yerushalayim in the 1940s, in the middle of World War II. 
and there was an organization that was um, trying to rescue people from Europe, from the Nazis. And they came to the Biskrov, and they asked him, would you write a letter, like Askama, to our organization so we can help uh, help the people and raise some money? So he asked them in, in the conversation, okay, knew how much do you take for yourself? What's your, you know, what's the percentage that doesn't go for the, the mission of the, of the organization? And when they told him the number, I don't know what it was, he said, look, I'm happy to, to advocate and encourage people to give to your institution, but I'm not so sure that I can advocate uh, for people to give to your mashalach. You know, and he, he refused to sign, and they kept they kept pushing him and told him, look, this is the percentage we give to our, our shaleach is relatively low compared to what or, other organizations, um, you know, give their, their people. So, uh, and without that, we would not be able to, to function. If we didn't have, uh, to, to, if we didn't spend this overhead, things would not run, and we would not be able to uh, to find something to replace, <clears throat> to replace our shaleach at a at a lower a lower wage. So ultimately, on the one hand, the Biskarov appreciated that, and he, he understood it, but he, he was struggling. He had a very hard time, you know, in the end of the day, w- deciding whether or not to commit to give that, um, that haskam, rakadain pikpik ma'od, alhamlatsoso, imugitain yadalokat. I wasn't sure if he should give that same um, approbation, you know, if it, if, it, if it recommended people give in a way that he wasn't confident was 100% uh, at the rate, you know, and uh, the, with the compensation going to the, to the mishalachim, uh, that would be appropriate for him to, um, uh, to, to, to back. Now, nowadays, at least in America, we do have the advantage of the fact that, that you can research this. I think this is all publicly available online because the organizations need to report to the IRS what, what they take in, what, their, what, their, uh, what, what percentage goes to expenses, and what percentage actually goes to poor people. Uh, and some of the information may be shocking. Someone told me they spoke to someone they know in Riverdale, and they actually researched uh, one of these organizations. I think it's someone told me it's uh, CharityNavigator.com or something like that. And they found one of the organizations was taking 89% for, uh, for overhead, which is crazy. It's very, very hard to, to, uh, to swallow that. But, uh, you know, maybe we have to do a little more research. Right? We're, we're working with the, the Chazanish being okay with 51%. Over, is that overall just for the Meshulach? That assuming they would know the expenses of the tzedakah? Not clear. Not clear. We're not 100% sure of the veracity of that uh, number, uh, the 51% report in the name of the Chazanish, but, uh, but, but that is what uh, is shared in his name. Yes, uh, what's your question? Uh, let me try to illustrate. Uh, let's just look at two things quickly, and then I'll, I'll, uh, I'll try to answer your question and bring it together. Look at, look at the tzedakah Mishpat again. Two, uh, two points here. Number one, Nira Od. This is fascinating. Nira Od, Shekoshu Latovas HaTzedakah, Rasha Gabi HaTzedakah, Liknos Malbush Chosher Mimos HaTzedakah, Dumi Da Petrofis V'Gadol HaAchem Menechse Yisomun. The Gemara says that, let's say, um, someone dies and they leave a lot of money to, to Yisomun. <coughs> Yisomun too young to manage their own affairs. So one of two things can happen. Either they can appoint an Petrofis, basically appoint an Petrofis to make sure that their, the estate is, uh, is properly administered to. Sometimes you have a situation where there's one older brother who gets his chelik of Yerusha, and he has younger, younger siblings, younger brothers who also get a chelik of Yerusha, but they're too young. Um, and in those situations, the Gemara seems to say that the apotropis, or the older brother, can take money from the estate to buy himself a nice new suit, or other things like that, because if he is charged with the responsibility of, you know, representing in court or in in the boardroom or whatever it happens to be, 
the interests of the Asomim, and he needs to present himself as a respectable and, you know, fine gentleman, knowledgeable and uh, professional. And, and the way that he does that is by how he, uh, he appears to others. Okay, that's a, that's a necessary expense. That's a reasonable expense for him to, to take out of the money. Okay, so we see how expansive this principle is. Um, and I think it's fair to say that it's almost as if we assess reasonable spending on tzedakah not much different, not much differently than we would assess what's reasonable spending for one's own personal business. We find this in other areas of halacha and Hashem Saveda. But if you look at this paragraph over here, it says, Let's say the gabai tzedakah is, is on the road and he's traveling, right? So does he have to stay at like some cheap, you know, Roach Motel, you know, like with bad, uh, with, with terrible accommodations and, and scary clientele, you know, next door? Um, and Or is he able to uh, upgrade to the Holiday Inn, you know, and, and have a have a reasonable stay where in a safe, clean place? Because that's what would be normal for him if he was traveling for business, okay? Does he have to go out of his way to be Matriach Tircha Yisera for the benefit of Tzedakah? Now, we would imagine, and it's true, to the extent that one can be vigilant to spend the money only as is necessary, then then you should. I think we mentioned uh, recently the story of um, Rav Henkin. Very important story. Rav Henkin was the administrator of the Ezra's Torah Tzedakah Fund, world-famous Tzedakah Fund, the, the money in YU, and the Pushkas primarily goes to Ezra's Torah. So he was the administrator of the fund. He was a, a world-renowned posek. Uh, he was the Gadol Ador in America, you know, certainly before Moshe Feinstein arrived, and, and together with Moshe for many years, they overlapped. And people would call him from all over the all over the place with Shilas. And he had a little black book. And when someone would call him, and he'd pick up the phone, he'd write down what time it is, and he'd write down, again, what time it was when he hung up the phone, even though, again, he was answering Shilas. And maybe the reason why he was appointed to be the head of the tzedakah was because he was such a world-renowned posek. But nevertheless, if he was doing something other than dealing with the tzedakah's needs... He would mark that time to make up for it later, so he would not take a penny from the tzedakah unnecessarily. So that was a big mitzvah chasidus and a true d- display of honesty. But a person may not need to go, you know, way out of his way if he wouldn't do that for his own business, right? If it's your business, you take a phone call in the middle, you know, and uh, if something comes up, you need to deal with it. Nafkamina, the uh, example he gives is, let's say someone gives you $50. A visitor from, from, from America comes to uh, Eretz Yisrael and he hands the Gabbai Tzedakah $50 bill. So the Gabbai Tzedakah is going to have to change the money to Shkolim, right? He can go to the bank and they'll give him an exchange rate of 4.5% or 5% or whatever it is, right? Or he can go on the black market or on Ben Yehuda and he'll get 3.5% or something like that, right? So is he mechuyiv to, to hock around and find a better deal or can he just go to the bank like he does with all this? He's going to make a deposit anyway, so he's going to, while he's there, he's going to say, can you please deposit this, you know, and give me, give me a change in Shkolim. So Rabbi says, yeah, if that's what he would do with his, with his own money, with his own business, that's entirely reasonable. And getting back to the Apotropos, likewise, he poskins, if a Gava Tzedakah needs to buy a new suit, so he doesn't come around, you know, in a tattered kapota, looking like a mess, looking like a pauper, but rather, you know, when he, when he comes and visits the, uh, the wealthy benefactor in his, uh, you know, uh, Madison Avenue apartment or whatever, in, uh, or Madison Avenue office in, in the city to, to ask for, for donation, he can look like a mensch, and he's entitled to do so that do that again because it's an investment in the long-term fundraising 
uh, outcome, even if he has to give up some money now, but but it's because he believes that it's going to pay off in the future. Yes, uh, Penny, what's your question? Okay, so let's let's uh, let's start to bring it home on both sides. So we discussed the credit card. Let's get back to the other question we raised earlier about uh, about the driver fees. So take a look at the safer recent safer about 10, 15 years ago came out called Hilch of Tzedakah, and he addresses our topic very directly in Simon Yutes. Drivers, okay, and it's very common today for uh, there to be professional. Drivers who, uh, you know, individuals come from Israel, they don't know where to go, they don't know when to go to, uh, you know, to find people who can, who can give them money. So they hire a driver who takes them around because these drivers know from experience already. They've learned where, where the shuls are, where you can collect, where the, the wealthy people are that you can collect, and you know when to find them. And they'll bring people around, they'll transport them, these individuals who are looking for benefactors. So he says, number one, it's accepted for them to take one-third of the donations that come in. Okay, I told you 40%, and I think that might not be... Uh, so unusual out in the world today either. Okay, but let's say a third. So he says, you could you could discuss, you could you could ju- you could you could question whether or not taking a third is Yosher Vatzedek. Is that really appropriate? Or are you taking advantage of the uh, of, of the poor people? Literally the poor people who are trying to collect money. You're taking such a big uh, cut off the top, right? So we could discuss if that's appropriate or not. I spoke to someone recently, and they said, look, you know, 40%, 30%, like, he said, unless you're in business, you really have no idea how much overhead is really necessary to run a business. And this guy's also running a business. On the one hand, he has to buy a car, he has to pay for the gas, it costs a lot of money for gas these days, and it's his time that he's spending, and he also has a certain proprietary knowledge, right? If you're trying to grow a business, you can bring in a consultant from outside to, to uh, help you out with information you don't have. So this guy has amassed knowledge about where to go and when to go and who to collect from. That's that's a value. That is something which is quantifiable that, that he has a right to charge for. Whatever the appropriate sum is, but you can't say that it's it's nothing. He, he can't expect to do it out of the goodness of his heart. But the qualification at the end of this paragraph is those who, on their own, people collecting tzedakah for themselves or for <coughs> organizations, who ignore an agreement that was made in advance with the driver, there is no basis in the halacha for that. That's a violation of Chosha Mishpat. That may be a form of of, uh, of, of, of also. That we have an arrangement, or it's understood, that this is the percentage that the driver gets, and you're going to ask the rabbi for two different checks to try to cheat the driver, that is absolutely unacceptable. Absolutely unacceptable. You want to have a different deal? You want to make a different percentage with the driver? So you can negotiate that with him. But you can't bring someone else in to you know to to help pull off a scheme which is totally unfounded totally unfounded okay so that's uh that's as far as that question is concerned let's conclude our side with a, a fascinating story okay um you have it in here in english and in hebrew but uh let's you can read it yourself but i'll, I'll give you a quick synopsis story is is told about Rav Chaim 
Chaim Velazhen, of course, was the founder of the great Velazhen Yeshiva, first of its kind, and uh, attracted, attracted the Gdolim from all over Europe, the best, uh, best and brightest Hamidim, who uh, would ultimately, many of them, would be uh, the Rosh Yeshivas of the next generation. Chaim Velazhen was a Talmud of Vilgon. This was one of his uh, <coughs> great life achievements, to create the Velazhen Yeshiva. So you can imagine, there was a lot of fundraising that had to be done to, uh, uh, to keep the Yeshiva going. <coughs> and like any good CEO, Reb Chaim <coughs> would very carefully monitor the money coming in. And one year he saw that there was a certain simple villager who stopped giving. He was always a supporter of the Yeshiva, and then one year he just stopped giving. Reb Chaim wanted to find out what exactly happened. So he, uh, <coughs> he, he, got, <coughs> he got, in, uh, got in the wagon together with the Gavai Tzedakah, and they went out to visit this guy. And he welcomes him, and he, you know, he comes in, he has a cup of tea, and, uh, and he says, you know, was it something I said? What happened? Why is it that you suddenly decide not to give us any money? And the villager said to him, you know, Ford Harav, with all due respect, I always gave money to support the boys who are learning. Because I wanted to see the yeshiva successful and, uh, and the Torah to expand and to raise the next generation of, uh, of Rabbanim, of leaders of Rosh Yeshiva. And now, a few weeks ago, your Gabbai comes and he pulls up to my house wearing a nice tuxedo and a top hat. And I see he bought, uh, you know, some new horses and a beautiful wagon. And I said to myself, you know, what's going on over here? The guy used to come to my house and visit, you know, dressed very simply and, and uh, in a hired, uh, hired wagon. And all of a sudden, he, you know, he pulls up in his Mercedes and his uh, Armani suit. And, and the money that I wanted to give to the yeshiva, to the boys who were learning, is clearly going for uh, all this high-end uh, luxury item. So, I don't want to give any more. That's what he said. Chaim Legend said, let me tell you something. Let me tell you this, this vort. And the vort is the same vort, the answer to the question that we started with. Remember the question? The question was, B'tzal al-Baruri ben al-Mati He's endowed with the Ruach al-Kim. Divine Spirit, Chachma Vesvuna Vedas Vchom Alacha, Lachshov Machshavos, Lachshov Machshavos Bezov Bekesav Nachoshes. I'm going to, I'm going to give you thoughts. He's going to think thoughts. What in the world is that referring to? What in the world is that referring to? So, says Rebbe Chaim I'll tell you why. You know, he had to collect a lot of gold, right, for the Mishkan. But there are a lot of different places where that gold needs to go. The gold could go anywhere from being fashioned into the Kruvim on top of the Aron Kodesh, right there in the middle of the action in the Kodesh HaKadosh in the holiest place. And the gold could also be used to, uh, you know, to make a pitchfork that was used to move around some carbonos on the, on the Mizbeach or maybe uh, you know, to fill with some water uh, to, uh, to pour or some wine to pour or you know, to help the Kohen wash his hands in the morning, his feet in the morning, something like that. Right? There are many different places where the gold can go. The different people also, when they give a donation to Tzedakah, to Mishka, whatever it happens to be, they have different intentions in mind. Some of them may have the purest intentions, and some of them, they want their name on a plaque. It's not L'Shem Shemayim. How did B'Tzalel know where to give every penny that came in? And the answer is Hashem imbued him with this ability, Lachshav Machshavas. He could think thoughts, meaning he could discern what the thoughts were of the individuals who, who were giving the money to understand their true intentions 
and how pure they were, or not so pure, not Lashem Shemayim. The people who had the most pure intentions, their gold went straight to the Kosh And the people who did it, Shalom Lashem Shemayim, very happy to accept it. Even Shalom Lashem is also very valuable. But they, were, they found themselves, that gold, that money, found itself in a less holy place, also a great mitzvah, but it didn't make it to the Kosh HaKadoshim. And the, the, the special talent that B'Tzal was given, Lachshor Mokshavos, was to discern these thoughts. So he said to the villager, you do not need to stop giving a penny to Velazhin. You know why? Because I know, and you know that your intentions are pure. You wanted your money to go right to the Kosh HaKadoshim, right to the base measures, right to the boys learning. And it will. Bottom line, we need to hire a Meshulach, and we need to supply him, and we need to give him, you know, cover the expenses, including that which it takes to make him look presentable for other people who maybe put more of a value on that. And he needs that to, to, to collect from them. But rest assured that your money is not going to go there. Your money is going to go to the Kosher Kedoshim. Someone who's less, less pure, their money is going to go to buy the horse and the carriage and the suit. But Lakshav Makshav is going to make sure that uh, the well-intentioned funds will find their way straight to, uh, to the Kosher Kedoshim. Let's read this last paragraph together. No, then I'll take a question. Afanu so Chaim said to the to the the person who's going to donate, we are not like Tzal. <coughs> we don't know exactly what everybody's thinking, or the purity of their intentions and their donations. We don't have someone as as holy as Tzal like the, they had in the midbar. But Hashem Himself stepped to the plate, as it were, in Tzal's stead. To oversee all of the donations that are given to Yisrael. Automatically, those who give with a full heart and a pure heart, their money gets directly to those who need it, the people who are learning, who uh, who, who is ultimately the target of the donation. The people who are their money ultimately pays. For the Meshulach and the Sus, you can rest assured your money is going to go to the right place for the holy endeavor of those who are learning Torah. And that's where your money is going to go.